0: Girls5eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for outstanding comedy series and all other eligible categories. Another day is here, and you're ready for
1: it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi,
0: everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 32 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and I've got to tell you, it does not get better than this episode. Why? Because we are going to spend 45 minutes with someone who is as great a filmmaker as anyone alive today, and maybe ever. Yes, I'm talking about Steven Spielberg, whose films have been seen and loved by more people than anyone else's in history. Among them, Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., The Color Purple, Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, Munich, War Horse, Lincoln, and most recently, Bridge of Spies. Nobody can match that body of work, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Over the course of the conversation, we talk about why Bridge of Spies is such a personal film for Spielberg and why it's so gratifying to him that it's been recognized as much as it has been, with a 91% favorable rating on Rotten Tomatoes, $162 million in ticket sales around the world, and six Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, which puts Spielberg, one of the film's producers, in sole possession of the record for Most Nominated Producer with nine nominations in that category. We also talk about the inspiration for and impact of many of his other great films. And we get his take on the hot-button controversy of the day, the lack of Oscar nominations for people of color this year, and the way the Academy has handled it. And suffice to say, he does not hold back his opinions. We also get into all kinds of other stuff from Spielberg's biggest regrets, including allowing a camera crew to film him on a nominations morning many years ago when things didn't pan out the way he hoped they would, to what he does for fun when he's not making films. And yes, believe it or not... Playing video games is on the list. The bottom line, it's a conversation you will not want to miss with a guy who has changed the shape of cinema for over 40 years. It was a great privilege for me to get to sit down with Mr. Spielberg, and I think it will be a great pleasure for you to hear what he had to say. So let's go to the conversation. Well, first of all, thank you so, so much for doing this. It's the treat of a lifetime, and I just want to begin by asking you if you can share for folks who may not know that your desire to make Bridge of Spies sort of stems in part from your own childhood memories and also something that involved your father, right? Well, the
1: Gary Powers incident, which was the uh, shoot down uh, of uh, the uh, spy plane, the U-2, at the end of the 50s, I think it was 1960, um, was something that was uh, all over television. You couldn't miss it. I was, I was just a teenager. But um, it was something that my dad and mom always talked about, and we watched on TV, and there was a trial of Gary Powers, and it was a big deal. And um, in the middle of the Cold War, in the middle of tensions reaching almost a flashpoint with this incident, uh, my dad got invited to Moscow. He worked for General Electric, and they decided, in the interest of detente, to uh, exchange five uh, Soviet well, I'd want to call them Soviets because they were Russian engineers for five American General Electric engineers. And in the middle of all that, my dad announced at dinner one night that he was going for three weeks to Moscow. And, of course, we all panicked, my sisters and myself, my mom even, and demanded to our father not to go. He'd wind up uh, in a gulag uh, or... (laughs) You know, some such place. And my dad insisted. He said, "He said, no, this is important. He said, I really think I, somebody's got to stand up and go over there and try to make peace or at least try to talk about the coexistence through technology, right. that maybe technology can bring our countries together. He really believed that. So he went over there, and he actually found out there was a building that housed the pieces of the U-2, and there was a long line of of, of Russians standing in line to see the remains of the U-2 and Gary Power's entire flight suit. And my dad stood in that line, and he was in the line for about an hour, inching forward when a big colonel walked over to my dad, and a couple, I guess, plain clothes. I guess they could be KGB people. My dad didn't know they were in, not in uniform. Took all their passports, looked at their passports, and then the colonel crooked his finger and... My dad and his delegation followed this colonel to the head of the line into the building, right to the front of the display. And there was the U 2, a wing, the tail section, part of an engine, the flight suit, and the Russian holding the passports in his hand, waved the passports at the U 2, and then waved them, waved them at my father and said in English, Look what your country is doing to us. And he kept saying it over and over again, his face getting redder and redder. Look what your country is doing to us. And I asked my dad, I said, Dad, what were you thinking during this, and my dad kept saying, my dad said, well, I, I was hoping to get our passports back. Yeah, right,
0: right, right. <laughs> that was a rational answer, yeah. Yeah, So
1: So so, when when Matt Sharman um, came over to LA and told us the story of James B. Donovan and Rudolph Abel, these were things I knew nothing about, but when he mentioned Gary Powers, a light bulb went off in my head.
0: When your parents divorced, it seems like that was a big moment in your life. Do you have a theory of how it impacted you? Well,
1: I think it impacted my sisters more than me. It probably, of course, it impacted all of us because divorce is trauma, and trauma is, is a stain that doesn't go away without a lot of you know, attention paid to it. But my parents, my dad and mom got divorced just as I was going off to Long Beach State for my first year of college. And so I was already in a panicked transition, being for the first time uh, thrown into the world on my own, leaving home, which was in, in those days Saratoga, California, Northern California, to come south to go to Long Beach. So I, in a sense, I, it was a blunted, I had a blunted reaction to it, and I saw it coming. For years, we all saw it coming.
0: Do you think that that event that we just discussed shaped the sorts of films that you've made?
1: Well, I, who, who can say? I mean, there's a lot of events in all of our lives that shape the films we made, and sometimes there's, there are events that aren't traumatic or seismic, Events like maybe having a dream and remembering your dream and somehow finding a story to go along with the dream you once had. It doesn't have to be an earth-shattering, you know, uh, uh, you know, deep impact of an event. It could be the smallest thing. It could be of something you observe standing in line at Starbucks. Right. It doesn't really have to be, you know, the trauma of divorce or death right. or a birth. It 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 could be just something like, um, you know it could be nostalgia mm-hmm. that brings you around to telling a story. Uh, but who's to say? But I don't like to psychoanalyze mm, myself. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> you know, if I do that, then right. I would spend all my time thinking about that and, and no time on the on the soundstage. Right.
0: Well, the last sort of question of that nature, that, and then I'll drop it, but I, I recently read somewhere that you quite recently revealed for the first time that dyslexia was something that you think may have driven you in some ways towards filmmaking, and I wonder if you can talk about that.
1: Well, I didn't know I was dyslexic until a number of years ago, maybe eight, nine, ten years ago, when my daughter, who who was diagnosed as having dyslexia, when the person who diagnosed her also uh, diagnosed the person who brought my daughter in for the mm-hmm. for the observation. And I took a test, and, and, and I always knew that my reading skills were uh, the bane of my young existence. Uh, I always got made fun of from not being able to read as fast as my classmates, and even the teachers made fun of me. I'll never forget that. Oh so, um, and I didn't know what it was, and I was always a very slow reader. I took an Evelyn Wood course in college just to try to keep up with the with 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 the courses I was taking, and. Um, and and it, it did, nothing really helped, but except reading a lot. The more I read, the, the the more I accommodated for something I didn't know I needed to accommodate for. Right, right. Until I was diagnosed as being dys- dyslexic and having been dyslexic all my life. And and the other thing I learned is those who are uh, sharpen their other skills. And and I think my visual, you know, my my, my visual muscle is probably an overcompensation for for how I don't read as well as uh, sure. I, I'd like to.
0: So, your company has just been relocated to Universal, right? And well, I've always been at Universal, you've always been, but, but now I'm officially <laughs> right. at
1: Universal uh, for the first time in like 22 years.
0: Well, and even further back, if we're talking unofficially, right? So, mm-hmm. I wonder how did you start, I guess, illicitly at first, spending time at Universal?
1: Oh, you talk about at the very beginning. Yes. <laughs> well, I just walked onto the lot. Uh, well, what happened was I was I was on a tour bus, a grade line tour bus, and I jumped off the tour bus halfway through the tour and hid in the bathroom because <laughs> we ha- they, they gave us bathroom breaks periodically, and so I never came out of the stall. I, I stayed in there for half an hour, and when I did come out, the bus had left, and so that was my first time on the lot by myself. And I spent the rest of the day just going onto sound stages and walking in and out of buildings and having. I had a lot of. I had. I actually had a lot more chutzpah back then than I, have,
0: than I have now. I don't even recognize the kid that did that. That's so great that uh, you did it though, and, and it was it became a repeated thing? Yeah,
1: you... yeah, I, went every, I was at, I was in high school, I was taking the summer, uh, I was spending this uh, time in Canoga Park with our th- third cousins and and uh, went into Universal and walked past Scotty the guard every day wearing a little bar mitzvah suit and a small <laughs> thin tie and he waved me through. Who were your most important mentors? Certainly um, Sid Sheinberg was the man that uh, jump-started my career. Um, I was in college, you know, I was a sophomore at Long Beach State, and he's the one that saw my short film Amblin and uh, offered me a seven-year TV term term uh, direct directing contract with Universal, with MCA at the time, to direct television. So he was the one that mentored me and, st- and stuck with me all these years, and is still a very strong consigliere
0: in my yeah. life. <laughs> and it's because of that deal, I guess, that you wind up at just 21 directing Joan Crawford on TV? Yeah, I was
1: 22, and I was directing Joan Crawford, and that was really intimidating. She treated me Great, she was a professional, and I, I later found out through Lou Wasserman that it took every ounce of talent as an actress to treat me as well as she did, because she was not going to um, besmirch the position, because that's what a professional was taught in mm-hmm. in the Golden Age of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. You respected your director, even if you didn't agree with him, or even if he looked like he was fourteen, which I did at the time. <laughs> so Joan Crawford, who who I later found out, you know, had a real tough time. Because she was hoping that they were going to hire George Marshall or Henry King or, or or Henry Hathaway or or or, or King Vidor. Right. That, that's who she was hoping they were going to hire to do a pilot. Right. They, well, they wouldn't have done the pilot. Um, <laughs> but when they assigned it to me, but she treated me like gold every day, and I, and I really, really, you know, have high regards uh,
0: for her f- for that. The first thing that convinced people to allow you to make a feature film was the TV film duel.
1: Yeah. Duel was the film that
0: where I started getting feature film offers and before, but not so much from television. Do you feel that then or now that you have to have a personal connection to the material in order to direct it or can you not feel any direct connection and say this is just interesting anyway and I'll get involved?
1: No, I can I can't work if I feel apathy or if I if I feel you know if I'm if I'm indecisive um or if i just feel a little bit lost before i before i start the journey right. if i'm lost before i start the journey i don't go near near the, <laughs> the subject matter <laughs> and i get out early and there's been times where i've jumped into something and had you know had buyers remorse <laughs> and had to find i had to kind of fight my way through the process but that's not happened very often i pretty much believed in all the stories i I've, I've been lucky enough to get to tell mm-hmm. and uh And the few that didn't quite click for me that I didn't really have a passion for, I found, uh, you know, technical reasons, Mm -hmm. you know, that I'm proud of in in the work.
0: Now, there are obviously exceptions to this, but it seems like earlier in your career, you tended to make films set in fantastical situations. and. Mm People obviously remember Close Encounters and Raiders and E.T. and Jurassic Park. But in more recent years, it seems like you've gravitated more towards films pertaining to historical events. And again, just to remind people, Schindler's List, Amstad, Saving Private Ryan, Eunuch, War Horse Lincoln, and then, of course, Bridge of Spies. So do you have a theory of why that change has happened?
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> no. You know, I love history. And yeah. I, love, I, I, think, I think the greatest stories are the stories that we can't write. Right. It's the stories that are written for us and are left for us to, 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 it, to advance you know, and to, to learn, learn from in advance. Those are my favorite stories, they really are, but also my other favorite kinds of stories are the stories that just have no qualifications, have no um, are not in a box and um, are the kind of stories that only the imagination can, can write or create and those are amazing. That, those are the films I grew up on. I didn't grow up on historical biographies I grew up on Films that were escapist, uh, you know, westerns and early science fiction and and, and, and films that were just uh, so much bigger than life that it would just knock your eyeballs back into your head. <laughs> and those are the films I grew up with. So I, I think, in a sense, when I first started out, I wanted to do what those people were doing right. i wanted to tell those kinds of stories and i still do to this day i sure. n- never i'm not tired of that right. and i i'm trying not to be too stentorial here and, and say i've moved into an emeritus <laughs> position <laughs> I, or i'm i'm going in, into the politics of being a film director right. because there's politics in all those films you sure. mentioned that i got involved in uh, that have to do with history but at the same time there's also escapism in those mm-hmm. films there's mm-hmm. also entertainment there's suspense. Tremendous. And uh, and and so in a sense those are a combination of the fantastical, and the um and the um the, the the historical.
0: Did it feel like though there was a time in your life when something switched because you've said for instance with Schindler's List which I guess was sort of yeah. the beginning of a new uh, phase perhaps mm-hmm. that it was quote something I was put on this earth to do close quote and I don't know if you necessarily felt that way about a film prior to that so I wonder mm-hmm. just if you saw that as a turning point.
1: I know I don't think the turning point came with ET. I think it, it, ET when I saw how people were reacting to it that was and even and, and it, I had I had jaws before that yes. and that was kind of a a film that that shook a lot of people yeah. up, <laughs> but but um, but you know, for me, ET had a deeper and greater and more positive social impact. And when I saw what that film could do to people's hearts and 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 bringing families together to share a movie experience as as a family, I, I at that point I said, "Oh my God, this is a powerful medium we're in." <laughs> I mean, I mean, scaring people with Jaws was one thing, and that was really fun. And there's a kind of you know, sadistic glee, I guess, in watching people jump out of the chairs. Um, but but it was really E. T. that made me realize that um, when you you hit a cultural nerve with a movie, it's not something you can repeat. And and I can't snap my fingers and do that again. And it's been th- those films in my career are few and far between. But that's what really I guess grew me up to the point that I said, you know, I this is, I got to be very responsible with this medium. This is something that could. They can hurt as much as it can help. And I also felt with E.T., and the reason I think it was a seminal moment in my career, is that I never, ever, ever wanted to have children before I worked with those three kids. Really, And when I was working with those kids, I discovered fatherhood. I discovered parenthood. And and even though it, it drew, drew I kept in my life to this day, yeah. she's a part of my life. But Drew then, I, I felt very much like I was... I was a a very strong parental force in her life, and it made me want
0: to have my own kids. Who do you make your films for? Do you have an audience in mind when you're making them, or is it just sort of you've got to feel good about them?
1: Well, it depends. If you're making Indiana Jones, you're making it for the old cliche of the four quadrant, you know, for everybody. And uh, I know when I'm making a film like *Bridge of Spies*, it's a it's a narrow but but healthy and interested audience, but it's not the *Force Awakens* audience. Right. And so I pretty much know my audiences before I get involved in the movies, you or at do. least I know what the what what the, what the now of course I was wrong with *Lincoln* because *Lincoln*, I thought we were going to get. Nobody coming to the theater, and it turned out to be one of the highest-grossing movies, uh, uh, probably the most highest-grossing political movie made up to to that point. And uh, and nobody had an inkling that that would even happen. So I I can't say that—I thought when I made Lincoln, it was more of a public service message, uh, a little piece of history, than it was having anything to do with— uh, you know,
0: a commercial expectation. And Bridge of Spies has done terrifically as and well. And
1: that's done really terrifically well too. And it did, it far exceeded what I thought it was going to do, really? which is okay. always nice when that happens. Sure.
0: There's got to be so many secrets to making films as special mm. as yours. But one of them, it seems like it might be that you make films like the old greats used to in the sense that you have a stock company of people behind mm-hmm. the camera who yeah. you work with almost every time in some mm-hmm. cases every time. And I just wonder, mm-hmm. you know, from John Williams to Michael Kahn to Janusz Kaminski, until recently Kathy Kennedy, why is it important to you to to have that continuity, and how do you think it has shaped your films?
1: Well, you know, the thing about having a continuity uh, uh, is that if, if, if the people like Janusz Kaminski and Rick Carter, who's done so many designs, he's he's designed so many of my productions, um, when there is a continuity, you know each other so well, you know, there's the, you don't have this... The, the, it's like touch typing as opposed to the hunt and pet right. peck method. You know, we, we, we just are completely fluid within each other's disciplines. You know, And I and the trust factor is so high that when you work with somebody you've worked with countless times, there's such trust and security inside that trust, knowing that they're going to surprise me and I'm going to surprise them, and we're going to inspire each other to do better work. Right. And that's why I like working with the same people over and over again.
0: And yet sometimes when you work with somebody for the first time, something magical can happen, right? And Daniel Always Day, happens that way. You've said Daniel Day-Lewis, <laughs> working with him made you a better director. What did you mean by that? Well,
1: there, Daniel's process and what Daniel brought to the movie, he brought Abraham Lincoln into our lives. Not just my life, but everybody on the set and all the actors playing opposite, you know, Daniel. Uh, and we really believed that we were back in the 19th century telling this this story on the abyss of the Civil War, you know, which way was it going to go? And was this really going to abolish slavery for all time? And, and we th- all felt that we were in the presence of the great man. And, uh, and I had never felt that before, ever, on any film.
0: And how did it change your working approach?
1: Well, what it what it simply did was it made me desirous to make all my movies with Daniel Day yeah. Lewis, <laughs> but he's a he's a hard catch. Yes,
0: yes. It took no, me ten well.
1: years to get him snagged <laughs> to agree to to play Abraham Lincoln.
0: You know, a question I've had, and they joked about this when he received his Oscar from Meryl Streep: is uh, how have you not worked with Meryl Streep yet?
1: <clears throat> well, I sort of have. Meryl and I sort of, uh, you know, we 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 sort of had a little career brush. Uh, when she played the vo- the Blue Fairy in A.I. Oh, yes. And so I, I, I got a wonderful chance to sit with her for an hour, just the two of us, and I, I ran the Dagger. Yeah. Uh, and we, I had the mic all placed, sort of like the same kind of mic I'm talking into now with the spit guard, yes. all of that, <laughs> and Meryl did all the lines for yes. the Blue Fairy. But that doesn't count, really. I mean, what would count is uh, Meryl and I finding a project to do together, and, and I really, really have a desire to work with her. Everybody has.
0: Question about Mark Rylance and Bridge of Spice. This is another actor who, it's, from everything I've heard, has sort of the same something special that Daniel Day-Lewis has and that very few other people have. It seems like you two really hit it off because immediately you asked them to do the BFG as well, right? Yeah, the
1: big friendly giant. He's, he plays the big friendly giant. I, I actually are from the movie after the first day of shooting. Wow. I was so blown away after the first day in New York. Uh, it was the long scene at the table where um, Donovan and <clears throat> Abel meet for the first time. And at the end of that day, I just went over to him and I said, "Would you read a script?" And that's how that's how the second movie began. Right. And gave him Melissa Matheson's, Matheson's wonderful screenplay. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, these are uh, look. I, I'm I'm blessed. I've worked with so many great actors from Richard Dreyfus. We did three in a row. You know, uh, um, Tom Hanks and I have done. I guess now we've done four movies, yeah. and um, you know we've done a lot more when you when, when you compare the co-productions we've done as producers, yeah, Band of Brothers, for, or... Band of Brothers and uh, some of the films that I produced for Tom when Tom was acting in his early career, just acting and and uh, uh, but I've been very very fortunate, you know, uh, I, I've worked with some Liam Neeson, I've just worked oh, with yeah. some great actors.
0: What aspect of the filmmaking process do you enjoy the most? Cutting. Really?
1: Yeah. I, it's all, I've always a, a enjoyed editing the most. Now, as I've gotten older, I've begun to enjoy the shooting process yeah. more than I did when I was younger. But I kind of shoot for the editing room, meaning I don't just do a lot of coverage. I don't shoot a lot of arbitrary shots and hope to figure out the movie right. in post-production. I, I figured out the movie before I come to the sound stage, And so everything I shoot is specific to the way I see it cut together in my head. It, that's why I edit as I, as I, as I film. Um, I edit every day. In the morning, before I get on the set, at lunch, and sometimes just after wrap for an hour. And I edit sometimes, on. A, if we're shooting five-day weeks, I'll edit on a Saturday. And I, The reason I do that is I get to see my movie coming to life right before my eyes, and I can make all of these changes. Right. When something didn't work according to my plan, that turned out to be not such a good plan. <laughs> the stets, sets are still standing, the actors right. are still there, and I get to reshoot.
0: What aspect of your filmmaking process do you wish you could most improve? Is there something you feel you could be better at? I could
1: be better at being more patient.
0: Really? <laughs> yes. I've never heard you throwing a tantrum I'm, or... Nurse, and,
1: uh, patience and throwing yeah. a tantrum are not yeah. the same thing. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying that uh, you know, I'm very, very impatient and sometimes I will rush something to get to something else that I'm even more excited about in the middle of a shooting day. Right. And I've been much better in recent years making every moment count and not glossing over everything because the money is on right. the shot we're gonna get after lunch, not the shot I'm doing at 10 o'clock in the morning. I've kind of gotten past that, but that was right. that, that impatience was a problem for me for a while.
0: You outgrew that, you feel? I
1: don't even though if I outgrew it, I think I just learned from you know reshooting a lot of stuff at 10 o'clock in the morning and then suddenly saying, you know, there's a reason you do that. Right. You don't have to do that anymore. Just take your
0: time. Do you read reviews? And if so, are there any critics that Particularly mean something to you.
1: I didn't read reviews when I was younger. I was terrified of them. I mean, everybody who says they they don't read reviews is because they're scared. Uh, um, but but I but I read reviews now. I've been reading reviews now for a number of years, and they're interesting. I no, I don't. I won't read them immediately mm-hmm. because all of us, all filmmakers, are at the kind of at that critical point of being so sensitive and so sort of overprotective right. of the child that you're about to orphan. Because, right, right, right. you know, we make these movies and we send them out into the world and they no longer belong to us. Right. They belong to everybody else. Right. And we're kind of just sort of, hey, remember me? I, I made it. <laughs> you know, we're in the, we're in the dust sometimes, right. left in the dust by our own right. movies if the movies are working for the public. But now I'm just sort of, um, I'm a little more philosophical now.
0: One thing that I kind of feel, I imagine if I if I were you, I would get a little annoyed about is that you almost get punished for having assembled such a great body of work, because in a sense, most people's movies are judged either Mm -hmm. solely on their merits Mm -hmm. or against what they're opening against. But you are expected to do Schindler's List or Saving Mm -hmm. Private Ryan every time out, right? I mean, that's kind of an impossible standard for anyone to meet.
1: (laughs) Hey, it's my own damn fault. It's your
0: own damn fault. I guess it's a a good problem (laughs) to have. (laughs)
1: Listen, those are my just
0: desserts. (laughs) Uh, I'm just grateful I get to keep working. Right. Which of your films do you kind of internally feel has been most... Misunderstood or, frankly, underappreciated. Is there one that you feel that doesn't get the love that it deserves?
1: Yeah, I I think the film. I I think one of the the underappreciated movies that I'm so proud of is Catch Me If You Can, mm-hmm. and that's one of my most favorite shooting experiences that I've ever had. I mean, it's up there in the top five. Of, really? Of yeah, and I'm really proud of that movie. And the the movie sort of is people enjoy it. It's, it's kind of it's kind of a confection, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, but but to me, there's some. Red meat on the bones of that of that story that I, that I'm very proud of. And I think Leo was exceptional.
0: Oh, it's terrific. Terrific.
1: And Tom was incredible, it was Carl Hanready.
0: Oh yeah. So ever since Jaws became, I guess, the first big blockbuster, there has been this increasing emphasis on how a movie does in its opening weekend. And that's affected a lot of things. And I wonder mm-hmm. what you think about this, because in a sense, the movies that you've made in recent years are more of the kind that sometimes require word of mouth and weeks mm-hmm. to build up that phone. Mm-hmm. They do get there, but mm-hmm. it takes them a little longer. So what do you think of how Jaws changed the business?
1: Well, I don't think Jaws, well, yeah, yes, Jaws did change the business because Jaws had the widest release of any movie in history. It came out in now you know hold on to your chair here because I'm going to give you a number of how many how, how many theaters it opened in. This is a huge number. But in 1975, it opened in 475 theaters. I mean, wow, that was that was considered the largest, the largest. massive opening ever. Crazy. And I I forgot the ex- exact Gross, but it did in those theaters something like seven and a half million dollars, which today would be considered a shanda. <laughs> uh, uh, but but then it was that was that was a mega opening, right? And um, but in those days, films played for a year, so let's not forget that we don't have the uh, you know the audience doesn't have the patience, and the theaters right. don't have the patience to hold right. you, and other movies are coming in, and and uh, you got you you have to do all your business in the first three or four weeks.
0: Something else that has changed over the course of your career is the idea that the studios now are increasingly answerable to these larger conglomerates, and they're expected to make a profit every time out, and they're perhaps less adventurous, and I guess I just wonder what your take on this is, and if it's something that is a real problem.
1: I think the studios get a bad rap for this, because I think people forget that most of these studios have specialty divisions. And these specialty divisions account for a lot of the sales at Sundance and some of the other festivals. These divisions allow low-budget films to get made and get proper distribution. And often, these um, within the same uh, studio, these are the films in the specialty divisions that compete against the the the, the mainstream right. uh, of films during Oscar time. Right. You know. So so I I just I've always found that very. Interesting that studios get bad raps for not making enough independent movies and then we forget but each studio has a specialty division that's in business to simply find those little gems and get them seen.
0: You mentioned the Oscars and I want to ask you something which is that first of all so people remember you've won Best Director twice Chandler's and Saving Private Ryan but before that there were a number of years there where you were not being recognized, and it bothered a lot of people who were supporters of yours. And I wonder if you have any, you know, some people speculated they there were people that resented the commercial success of some of these films or whatever. And I remember the year of Jaws; it was a particular letdown. I think it was on camera. Even. Yeah, <laughs> that
1: was a bad choice. That was a bad... <laughs> I don't know why. I, I don't know why I agreed. I guess I was so secure of, of, of the nomination for myself as director. That when they said, can we bring some cameras in to photograph your reaction when it's announced on television, I said yes. That was a big lesson I learned that day. Don't be sure of anything.
0: Well, it should have happened, but I do wonder, I guess, just you've said the year of E.T. was the one that hurt the most. And again, it wasn't until as late as Schindler's that they sort of got with the program. So I just wonder for you, what do you think of the Academy and the whole awards process?
1: Well, I think it's great. It's the apogee of recognition within our industry there is no greater recognition uh, than the than the Academy Award in, in every category th- that has a possible nomination. Um, so I'm a huge supporter of the Academy Awards. I, I love the history of it, and I love um, the longevity of it. You know, the Academy Awards, even though the uh, excitement gets a bit distilled because of all the other awards, te- te- televised right, right, award right. shows on... Prior to the Academy Awards, still when Academy Award night happens, everybody tunes in, and it's 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 exciting to be part of, and it's exciting to watch on
0: television. And yet it seems like, and definitely correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems like the season when Saving Private Ryan was up against Shakespeare and Love, mm-hmm. it got very cutthroat. People today talk about it as before and after that year, and you seem to be turned off a lot by it. I just, I got the sense that after that, you were not as, the idea of how overtly the the people were campaigning and pushing and all that is
1: well. It's a reality that we have to live with. You know, it's not that I got turned off by it. I didn't get turned off by it. There was, there was a fierce uh, competition long before uh, uh, 1999. Right. Long before 98, 99, there was there was fierce competition. There's always been competition back in the 40s and 50s. Uh, there was block voting. Right. You know, you know, Academy members, you know, at Fox were voting against Academy members at Warner Brothers, and they were all being trounced by the Academy members at MGM right. that won so many Oscars year after year. Right. I mean, this is not foreign to anyone who right. has had experience growing up in this town. Right. And it's just a, a reality. It's something we live with. And and there's a lot of money being thrown at it. but. I don't think they're. I, I'm not going to be. I'm not going to sit here and say we should have campaign finance limits, <laughs> the way John McCain was asking right. for a couple of years ago right. during a during a, a political cycle. I, but I, I, I do think that the amount of um, uh, uh, let's just call it uh, gifts, the amount of uh, enticements should be uh, should be reduced to zero. I, I think the thing I'm against the most are enticements. Is, is,
0: is Can you give an example for people who aren't in the mix of all this? Just,
1: just you know, people sending elaborate brochures and baskets, and <laughs> and and you know, you know, I th- I think sending out a DVD of your movie is all we should be doing, yeah, and nothing beyond that.
0: And not the dinners and all of. And them. not the
1: dinners and and anything else. I I just I just think it it becomes that that's a little bit different than the way it used to be, right. And um, I don't think there's anything I can say that's going to stop that from happening because it's also everybody likes to go to a good party. Right, right. <laughs> and so I don't want to <laughs> deny people you know, or, or say I'm against having a good party. Right, right. But there's something about actual campaigning right. where what you're campaigning for has been forgotten. Right. And it's the power of persuasion over the power of the story and right. of the contributions by the writer and the producer and the director and the cast and right. the technical crew and the art and, and, and the crafts and the arts. Everybody that makes a movie is kind of forgotten because that's not what's being right. sold. Right. And that's what I'm sad about.
0: Last Oscar-related question is just uh, The Color Purple was a movie that he made that with a largely black cast, got 11 Oscar mm-hmm. nominations. And then— did not win any of them, and people were at that time very upset like they are today about this idea that there seems to be some sort of a a, a change a lot of people feel in the way the academy is shaped or does business because there's not been a great amount of diversity in the last few years. However, there's also been a lot of pushback against the way this has been dealt with by the academy because there's some that feel it's implied that they are now racist because they're older and white and male or whatever. What do you make of this whole ongoing uh, Debate, which is what everybody's talking about right
1: now. Well, with The Color Purple, you know, I'm very proud of that movie, and all the diversity was recognized in Color Purple. The white guy director didn't get nominated, right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but everybody else right. uh, of diversity that's did, true. you know, so that's a little bit different. Right. Um, you have to look back a couple of years where Lapita was recognized for 12 Years a Slave, 12 Years a Slave won Best Picture. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't believe, you know, that there is inherent or, uh, uh, I guess, dormant racism because of the amount of white Academy members. I'm also not 100%, you know, uh, sure that taking votes away from Academy members who have paid their dues and maybe retire now and have done great service. Maybe they've not won, won an, uh, a nomination, which would have given them immunity mm-hmm. to the new rules, but they have served proudly, and it's, this is their industry, too, and to strip their votes is not something that I think is, is, is 100%. I'm not 100% behind that. Mm-hmm. I do think what the Academy is doing in a proactive way to open up the membership yeah. To diversity, I think that's very, very important. But it's not just the academy, and I think we have to stop pointing fingers and blaming the academy. It's people that hire. It's it's people at the at the gate, at right. the main gate of studios and independents. It's the it's the stories that are being told. It's who's writing diversity. It starts on the page, and and it's also, you know, we all have to be more proactive in getting out there and just seeking talent.
0: But you, I mean, from early on, you made your secretary your producer. Right? yeah, but yeah, but that's
1: because that's not because she was a woman. That that, that's because. But you were open
0: to the idea. It's not even. I didn't even. uh,
1: Gender had nothing to do with my decision to make Kathy Kathy Kennedy my producer for my secretary. She was damn good at her job, and not being a secretary, at being at my side, uh, you know, with value judgments and good taste and a great reserve of self confidence, and uh, she was a great sounding board to me. You know the. the, had had it been a guy, you know. I mean, it that the talent that Kathy had is what I brought with me right. to help make my films.
0: So, do you feel now that you, when you're casting a movie or when you're hiring the people that you're going to work with, is it a conscious decision now that you want to promote diversity in those decisions, or is it you just colorblind who's the person for the best person for the job?
1: Well, no. The, the, I, I once again i 've always been colorblind yeah so i it 's hard for me to to take a position because when you just look at the films i've made and look at the people who have worked on those films, look at the diversity within the crew within the you know the the the, the cast in, inside you know i've always but it 's not been something that I have gone out and specifically said there's a person there's a white woman who is perfect for this job, but there is a black gentleman who is not as good, but I think I need to. Be culturally, politically correct, and bring him into the experience. I, I, I've never worked that way. It's just look. I have two black children. Right, you know? right, right, right. I've, I've, I've been colorblind my entire life. Sure. Uh, so, so uh, to me, I, y- you know, you know, I, I, I have a tough time getting that third objective eye. And get up into the crow's nest where I can see better, right. and and see what's going on down there. You know, I voted. I'm not supposed to say what I voted for, so I, I won't break that academy rule. But you know, I was surprised at some of the individuals who were not nominated. I was surprised at um, Idris. Yeah, I was surprised at that. I think that was one of the best performances of this year in the supporting actor and the actor category. Yeah, yeah. was Idris. Yeah, I've seen Straight Outta Compton. My wife and I saw it when it first opened, the first weekend. And it just rocked our world. Yeah, It was incredible. I was very surprised to see that omission. Sure.
0: Apart from making films, what do you do for fun? What are your hobbies? Well, my
1: hobbies are basically... Um, making films and producing films and running a company
0: <laughs> <But> <laughs> and you gotta,
1: playing with my kids right. who are now all grown up now sure. and have their own lives. But, but like but,
0: somebody would love to hear that Steven Spielberg plays video games or something on the site. Well, Is there anything but I, like But that? they
1: know that. But people who know me know yeah. I play video really? games. I've played <laughs> video games since Pong. Really? us and I on Martha's Vineyard we found a Pong game. The very first Pong game plugged into a wall yeah. at the carousel at, uh, at I believe it was Oak Bluffs. And uh, we would go there sometimes after shooting uh, while we were still trying to get our sea legs back because right. the whole world would be right. rocking on land, you know. <laughs> and we would play Pong for three hours. So I I, I love video games.
0: And you're not you're a golfer or anything like that? I don't that? golf, no. No. No, no
1: I'm a, I am shoot trap and skeet. Oh, yeah? Uh, I have a large collection of uh, German and Italian and, and French... Uh, And British uh, English uh, shotguns. So I've 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 uh, shot skeet and trap uh, most of my adult life. Wow.
0: Now, are you ever tempted to pull a Daniel Day-Lewis and just take off a few years and find yourself? Well, I, I
1: did take off a few years, but not to find myself. Right, right. I took off a few years because I couldn't find the next project. Right, right, right. And maybe that's like finding myself and right, not right, being right, able to right. find myself. I mean, you're, you're <laughs> right about that. But after, uh, I, had a, I had two three-year hiatuses where I couldn't find a movie to direct that I just that, that would, I, I found a lot of things I was apathetic about, but I found nothing that held any passion for me. And, uh, and, and so that was six years between movies that sure. I, I did take off
0: what's it like knowing that you are a role model and a hero to so many people in and outside of the business? Is it gratifying? Is it stressful? Is it motivating? I'd really like to know because you've handled it more gracefully than some people.
1: Well, it motivates me to have somebody explain to me about one of my films they like or how it's influenced their careers or how it's made them want to be a movie director. And I meet so many young people that want to be Filmmakers and who are in fact making films, and they may make them on Snapchat, right? <laughs> but they're but they're but they're telling stories, and some of the stories are maybe six seconds long, and some of the stories are four minutes long, and then some of them go off and they make little features. But uh, but that's what gratifies me, I think, more than anything else.
0: Just hearing from is them just why.
1: hearing hearing uh, what film was it Raiders of the Lost Ark was it Jaws? What film made you want to make movies? Because I know how it felt to me mm-hmm. when I met David Lean. I was actually able to say. Uh, uh, Mr. Mr. Lean, Lawrence of Arabia made me want to get into this business and seriously be a movie director, which is true.
0: Yeah You will turn seventy later this year and much later this year much later this year. now, in the past. It seems like, and I mean, maybe you disagree with this, but it seems like a number of the even the greatest filmmakers, whether it's Wilder or Hitchcock, as mm-hmm. they got older, maybe the quality of their work wasn't what it once was. You uh, have never had this problem, and, and I wonder, how do you think you've managed to avoid that? And is that correct? You know, the fact that some filmmakers, as they get older, it's just they can't maintain it.
1: I, perhaps they don't want to maintain it. I don't, yeah. I don't know if it's, they can't maintain it. Right. You know, I, th- I think maybe a lot of filmmakers say, you know, I've... Made a lot of contributions, especially my favorite filmmakers from the old days, as as we say, the days of, of TCM right, that you right, watch on Turner right, Classic right. Movies. You know, they they made my I've, I've I'm working on my thirtieth movie now. I mean, they made fifty, sixty, seventy movies. Um, um, of course, after fifty, sixty, seventy movies, I might be in line to say, "That's it, I'm hanging it up." Right. But I, I've made a, just a fraction of the number of movies. I have the energy and I have the the desire to, to make. When you compare that to all the plethora of movies that the John Fords and the, the you know the the workhorse director Michael Curtiz, yeah. you know, the real workhorse directors made. And and I admire them. I admire those movies. Um, and I and I've, I've I know a lot of those guys. And they're not with us anymore. Mm-hmm. But I sought them out. I yeah. sought William Wyler out. I sought King Vidor out. Wow. I spent time with Michael Powell. I mean, a, a, a Kurosawa. I, I executive produced what what the third, I think it was the third to the last film he yeah. made. And some of them, uh, Kurosawa worked to the end of his life. Some of them just saw the culture as not being something they could relate to and couldn't tell stories in the new idiom and didn't think they would be any good at it and didn't think that the values that had sustained their careers for 40, 50 years were around anymore. And so that's, I think, why they pulled back and decided to uh, to retire.
0: So what keeps you feeling, you know, obviously so excited and energetic and enthusiastic about making films at this point?
1: I don't know. I don't know why, but I but I am. I mean, it's 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 uh, it, it, the greatest thing that the thing that makes me the happiest, aside from my marriage and my kids, and that's always in first position, mm-hmm. is waking up in the morning with an idea that can fit perfectly into a story that I'm preparing to tell. I mean, I mean, one idea a day uh, makes. If I can get one idea a day on the my current project, and it's a good idea, and I eventually wind up committing it to film, right. I said film,
0: not digital. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Noted, film, Noted. everybody. Uh,
1: that, that is why I, I, I can't stop doing
0: this. And if you hadn't become a filmmaker, what would you be doing today? I think i have been a composer. Really? Yeah, I think if I wasn't a director, I'd write music for film. When, as a filmmaker, were you most on your game? On which project, where everything was firing? If you look back, you're all cylinders firing perfectly. Was it a specific part of a film or a specific project?
1: Well, most of my films, I feel that I'm all my sil- cylinder fi- firing. Yeah. Not everybody yeah. <laughs> will agree with me on that. But most of the movies that I've actually directed, I have felt like, hey, right. I'm at the top of my game. Right. Um, I, I don't. There's only been a couple of films, I'm not going to name them, where I realized that that it had gotten away from me. And uh-huh. this wasn't really in my wheelhouse. Um, but most of the time, I felt on top of my game.
0: But when you hear, you know, some of them are just mentioned you pair probably about more than anybody from people, whether it's Schindler's or the opening mm. of Saving Private Ryan or mm. or whatever it may be. Do you get that something special happened there, or do you have a harder time seeing it the way other people see it?
1: I, I have a harder time because every movie I direct, I'm in. I'm sort of in the fog of war. Right. I'm right in the 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 geist of the Zeit, <laughs> and and I can't see. I can't see it. I can see the story I'm telling. You. I can see the characters. I can see, uh, you know, you know how to steer the ship, but I I, I really can't uh, have a measured objective, you know, viewpoint for that. That's up to the people that see the movie when I'm done making it. Right.
0: Last question is this. Whether it's Schindler's List or Saving Private Ryan or Lincoln or Bridge of Spies, do you believe that a film can actually change the world?
1: I think films change the world every day. But, I, I, but today, I have to include television. Because I think that the writing, the level of writing is, is, is as good in television as it is today in film. And, uh, you know, this, I, I don't want to name any series because every time I name a series or a miniseries, I get in trouble from my <laughs> friends who made the other series <laughs> and wonder why I didn't mention that. But let me just say that I'm watching more miniseries today than I've ever watched before because they're, they're like movies. And I'm, going, I'm seeing movies more than I've seen uh, before because, you know, it, it's, it all starts with the, with the written word. Right. I've always believed that it all starts with the scripts, and um, there's great work being done right now. And you got to take your hat off to the writers, right. and you got to just consider deem all of us directors lucky to either develop or be be handed a great piece of literature.
0: Well, I cannot thank you enough for this and for so many unbelievable hours at the movies. I mean, so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank it was thank great you. talking to you, you again. Too. You too. This year. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks.